0: Chapter 30 The Queen's Class is Organised Marilla laid her knitting on her lap and leaned back in her chair. Her eyes were tired and she thought vaguely that she must see about having her glasses changed the next time she went to town. For her eyes had grown tired very often of late. It was nearly dark, for the full November twilight had fallen around Green Gables and the only light in the kitchen came from the dancing red flames on the stove. Anne was curled up Turk fashion on the hearth rug, gazing into that joyous glow where the sunshine of a hundred summers had been distilled from the maple cordwood. She had been reading, but her book had slipped to the floor, and now she was dreaming, with a smile on her parted lips. Glittering castles in Spain were shaping themselves out of the mists and rainbows of her lively fancy. Adventures wonderful and enthralling were happening to her in cloudland. Adventures that always turned out triumphantly and never involved her in scrapes like those of actual life. Morella looked at her with a tenderness that would never have been suffered to reveal itself in any clearer light than that soft mingling of fireshine and shadow. The lesson of love that should display itself easily in spoken word, an open look, was one Marilla could never learn. But she had learned to love this slim, grey-eyed girl, with an affection all the deeper and stronger from its very undemonstrativeness. Her love made her afraid of being unduly indulgent indeed. She had an uneasy feeling that it was rather sinful to set one's heart so intensely on any human creature as she had set hers on Anne. And perhaps she performed a sort of unconscious penance for this by being stricter and more critical than if the girl had been less dear to her. Certainly Anne herself had no idea how Marilla loved her. She sometimes thought wistfully that Marilla was very hard to please and distinctly lacking in sympathy and understanding. But she always checked the thought reproachfully, remembering what she owed to Marilla. Anne, said Marilla abruptly, Miss Stacy was here this afternoon when you were out with Diana. Anne came back from her other world with a start and a sigh. Was she? Oh, I'm so sorry I wasn't in. Why didn't you call me Marilla? Diana and I were only over in the haunted wood. It's lovely in the woods now. All the little wood things, the ferns and satin leaves and crackerberries have gone to sleep. Just as if somebody had tucked them away until spring under a blanket of leaves. I think it was a little grey fairy with a rainbow scarf that came tiptoeing along the last moonlit night and did it. Diana wouldn't say much about that though. Diana had never forgotten the scolding her mother gave her about imagining ghosts into the haunted wood. It had a very bad effect on Diana's imagination. It blighted it. Mrs. Lynde says Myrtle Bell is a blighted being. I asked Ruby Gillis why Myrtle was blighted, and Ruby said she guessed it was because her young man had gone back on her. Ruby Gillis thinks of nothing but young men. The older she gets, the worse she is. Young men are all very well in their place, but it doesn't do to drag them into everything, does it? Diana and I are thinking seriously of promising each other that we will never marry, but be nice old maids and live together forever. Diana hasn't quite made up her mind, though, because she thinks perhaps it would be nobler to marry some wild, dashing, wicked young man and reform him. Diana and I talk a great deal about serious subjects now, you know? We feel that we are so much older than we used to be that it isn't becoming to talk of childish matters. It's such a solemn thing to be almost 14, Marilla. Miss Stacy took all us girls who are in our teens down to the brook last Wednesday and talked to us about it. She said we couldn't be too careful what habits we formed and what ideals we acquired in our teens because by the time we were 20, our characters would be developed and the foundation laid for our whole future life. And she said if the foundation was shaky, we could never build anything really worthwhile on it. Diana and I talked the matter over coming home from school. We felt extremely solemn, Marilla, and we decided that we would be very careful indeed and form responsible habits and learn all we could and be sensible as possible so that by the time we were twenty, our characters would be properly developed. It's perfectly appalling to think of being twenty, Marilla. It sounds so fearfully old and grown up. But why was Miss Stacey here this afternoon? That's what I wanted to tell you, Anne, if you'll ever give me a chance to get a word in edgewise. She was talking about you. About me? Anne looked rather scared. Then she flushed and exclaimed Oh, I know what she was saying I meant to tell you, Marilla Honestly, I did, but I forgot Miss Stacy caught me reading Ben Hur in school yesterday afternoon when I should have been studying my Canadian history Jane Andrews lent it to me I was reading it at dinner hour and I had just got into the chariot race when school went in I was simply wild to know how it turned out Although I felt sure Ben-Hur must win, because it wouldn't be poetical justice if he didn't. So I spread the history open on my desk lid, and then tucked Ben-Hur between my desk and my knee. I just looked as if I was studying Canadian history, you know. While all the while, I was revelling in Ben-Hur. I was so interested in it that I never noticed Miss Stacy come down the aisle, until all at once I looked up, and there she was, looking down at me. So reproachful-like. I can't tell you how ashamed I felt, Marilla, especially when I heard Josie Pye giggling. Miss Stacy took Ben Hur away, but she never said a word then. She kept me in at recess and talked to me. She said I had done very wrong in two respects. First, I was wasting the time I ought to have put on my studies. And secondly, I was deceiving my teacher in trying to make it appear I was reading history when I was in a storybook instead. I had never realised until that moment, Marilla, that what I was doing was deceitful. I was shocked. I cried bitterly and asked Miss Stacy to forgive me and I'd never do such a thing again. And I offered to do penance by never so much as looking at Ben-Hur for a whole week, not even to see how the chariot race turned out. But Miss Stacey said she wouldn't require that and she forgave me freely. So I think it wasn't very kind of her to come up here to you about it after all. Miss Stacy never mentioned such a thing to me, Anne. And it's only your guilty conscience that's the matter with you. You have no business to be taking storybooks to school. You read too many novels anyhow. When I was a girl, I wasn't so much as allowed to look at a novel. Oh, how can you call Ben-Hur a novel when it's really such a religious book? protested Anne. Of course, it's a little too exciting to be proper reading for Sunday and I only read it on weekdays and I never read any book now unless Miss Stacey or Mrs Allen thinks it a proper book for a girl 13 and 3 quarters to read. Miss Stacey made me promise that. She found me reading a book one day called The Lurid Mystery of the Haunted Hall. It was one Ruby Gillis had lent me. And oh, Marilla, it was so fascinating and creepy. It just curdled the blood in my veins. But Miss Stacy said it was a very silly, unwholesome book and she asked me not to read any more of it or any like it. I didn't mind promising not to read any more like it, but it was agonising to give back that book without knowing how it turned out. But my love for Miss Stacy stood the test and I did. It's really wonderful, Marilla, what you can do when you're truly anxious to please a certain person. Well, I guess I'll light the lamp and get to work, said Marilla. I see plainly that you don't want to hear what Miss Stacy had said to me. You're more interested in the sound of your own tongue than anything else. Oh, indeed, Marilla, I do want to hear it, cried Anne contritely. I won't say another word, not one. I know I talk too much, but I'm really trying to overcome it, and although I say far too much, yet if only you knew how many things I want to say and don't. You'd give me some credit for it. Please tell me, Marilla. Well, Miss Stacey wants to organise a class among her advanced students who mean to study for the entrance examination into Queen's. She intends to give them extra lessons for an hour after school, and she came to ask Matthew and me if we would like to have you join it. What do you think about it yourself, Anne? Would you like to go to Queen's and pass for a teacher? Oh, Marilla! Anne straightened to her knees and clasped her hands. It's been the dream of my life, that is, for the last six months, ever since Ruby and Jane began to talk of studying for the entrance. But I didn't say anything about it, because I supposed it would be perfectly useless. I'd love to be a teacher, but won't it be dreadfully expensive? Mr Andrews said it cost him $150 to put Prissy through, and Prissy wasn't a dunce in geometry. I guess you needn't worry about that part of it. When Matthew and I took to bring you up, we resolved we would do the best we could for you and give you a good education. I believe in a girl being fitted to earn her own living, whether she has to or not. You'll always have a home at Green Gables, as long as Matthew and I are here. But nobody knows what is going to happen in this uncertain world, and it's just as well to be prepared. So you can join the Queen's class if you like, Anne. Oh, Marilla, thank you. Anne flung her arms about Marilla's waist and looked up earnestly into her face. I'm extremely grateful to you and Matthew, and I'll study as hard as I can and do my very best to be a credit to you. I warn you not to expect much in geometry, but I think I can hold my own in anything else if I work hard. I dare say you'll get on well enough. Miss Stacey says you are bright and diligent. Not for worlds would Marilla have told Anne just what Miss Stacey had said to her. That would have been to pamper vanity. You needn't rush to any extreme of killing yourself over your books. There is no hurry. You won't be ready to try the entrance for a year and a half yet. But it's well to begin in time and be thoroughly grounded, Miss Stacy says. I shall take more interest than ever in my studies now, said Anne blissfully, because I have a purpose in life. Mr Allen said everybody should have a purpose in life and pursue it faithfully. Only, he said we must first make sure that it is a worthy purpose. I would call it a worthy purpose to be a teacher like Miss Stacy, Wouldn't you, Marilla? I think it's a very noble profession. The Queen's class was organised in due time. Gilbert Blythe, Anne Shirley, Ruby Gillis, Jane Andrews, Josie Pye, Charlie Sloan and Moody Spurgeon McPherson joined it. Diana Barry did not as her parents did not intend to send her to Queen's. This seemed nothing short of a calamity to Anne. Never, since the night on which Minnie May had had the croup, had she and Diana been separated in anything. On the evening when the Queen's class first remained in school for the extra lessons, and Anne saw Diana go slowly out with the others to walk home alone through the birch path and violet Vale. It was all the former could do to keep her seat and refrain from rushing impulsively after her chum. A lump came into her throat and she hastily retired behind the pages of her uplifted Latin grammar to hide the tears in her eyes. Not for worlds would Anne have had Gilbert Blythe or Josie Pye see those tears. But oh Marilla, I really felt that I had tasted the bitterness of death. As Mr. Allen said in his sermon last Sunday, when I saw Diana go out alone, she said mournfully that night. I thought how splendid it would have been if Diana had only been going to study for the entrance too. But we can't have things perfect in this unperfect world, as Mrs. Lynde says. Mrs. Lynde isn't exactly a comforting person sometimes, but there's no doubt she says great many very true things. And I think the Queen's class is going to be extremely interesting. Jane and Ruby are just going to study to be teachers. That is the height of their ambition. Ruby says she will only teach for two years after she gets through. And then she intends to be married. Jane says she will devote her whole life to teaching and never, never marry because you are paid a salary for teaching. But a husband won't pay you anything. And growls if you ask for a share in egg and butter money. I expect Jane speaks from mournful experience. For Mrs Lynn says that her father is a perfectly old crank and meaner than second skimmings. Josie Pye says she isn't just going to college for education's sake because she won't have to earn her own living. She says, of course, it is different with orphans who are living on charity. They have to hustle. Moody Spurgeon is going to be a minister. Mrs. Lynn says he couldn't be anything else with a name like that to live up to. I hope it isn't wicked of me, Marilla. But really, the thought of Moody Spurgeon being a minister makes me laugh. He's such a funny-looking boy, with that big fat face and his little blue eyes and his ears sticking out like flaps. But perhaps he will be more intellectual-looking when he grows up. Charlie Sloan said he's going to go into politics and be a member of Parliament. But Mrs Lynde says he'll never exceed at that, because the Sloanes are all honest people, and it's only rascals that get on in politics nowadays. What's Gilbert Blythe going to be? queried Marilla, seeing that Anne was opening her Caesar. I don't happen to know what Gilbert Blythe's ambition in life is. If he has any, said Anne scornfully. There was an open rivalry between Gilbert and Anne now. Previously, the rivalry had been rather one-sided. But there was no longer any doubt that Gilbert was as determined to be first in class as Anne was. He was a foeman worthy of her steel. The other members of class tactically acknowledged their superiority and never dreamed of trying to compete with them. Since the day by the pond when she had refused to listen to his plea for forgiveness... Gilbert, save for the aforesaid determined rivalry, had evinced no recognition, whatever, of the existence of Anne Shirley. He talked and jested with the other girls, exchanged books and puzzles with them, discussed lessons and plans, sometimes walked home with one or the other of them from prayer meeting or debating club. But Anne Shirley, he simply ignored, and Anne found out that it was not pleasant to be ignored. It was in vain that she told herself, with a toss of her head, that she did not care. Deep down in her wayward feminine little heart, she knew that she did care, and that if she had the chance of the Lake of Shining Waters again, she would answer very differently. All at once, as it seemed, and to her secret dismay, she found that the old resentment she had cherished against him was gone gone just when she most needed its sustaining power. It was in vain that she recalled every incident and emotion of that memorable occasion and tried to feel the old satisfying anger. That day by the pond had witnessed its last spasmodic flicker. Anne realised that she had forgiven and forgotten without knowing it. But it was too late, and at least neither Gilbert nor anybody else nor even Diana, should ever suspect how sorry she was and how much she wished she hadn't been so proud and horrid. She determined to shroud her feelings in deepest oblivion, and it may be stated here and now that she did it, so successfully that Gilbert, who possibly was not quite so indifferent as he seemed, could not console himself with any belief that Anne felt his retaliatory scorn. The only poor comfort he had was that she snubbed Charlie Sloane unmercifully, continually and undeservedly. Otherwise, the winter passed away in a round of pleasant duties and studies. For Anne, the days slipped by like golden beads on the necklace of the year. She was happy, eager, interested. There were lessons to be learned and honour to be won, Delightful books to read, new pieces to be practised for the Sunday school choir. Pleasant Saturday afternoons at the manse with Mrs Allen. And then, almost before Anne realised it, spring had come again to Green Gables, and all the world was abloom once more. Studies palled just a wee bit then. The Queen's class, left behind in school, while the others scattered to green lanes and leafy woodcuts and meadow byways, looked wistfully out of the windows and discovered that Latin verbs and French exercises had somehow lost the tang and zest they had possessed in the crisp winter months. Even Anne and Gilbert lagged and grew indifferent. Teacher and Top were alike glad when the term was ended and the glad vacation days stretched rosily before them. But you've done good work this year, Miss Stacy told them on the last evening. And you deserve a good, jolly vacation. Have the best time you can in the out-of-door world and lay in the good stock of health and vitality and ambition to carry you through next year. It will be the tug of war, you know, the last year before the entrance. Are you going to be back next year, Miss Stacy? asked Josie Pye. Josie Pye never scrupled to ask questions. In this instance, The rest of the class felt grateful to her. None of them would have dared to ask it of Miss Stacey, but all wanted to, for there had been alarming rumours running at large through the school for some time that Miss Stacey was not coming back the next year, that she had been offered a position in the grade school of her own home district and meant to accept. The Queen's class listened in breathless suspense for her answer. Yes, I think I will said Miss Stacy, I thought of taking another school, but I have decided to come back to Avonlea. To tell the truth, I've grown so interested in my pupils here that I found I couldn't leave them. So I'll stay and see you through. Hurrah, said Moody Spurgeon. Moody Spurgeon had never been so carried away by his feelings before, and he blushed uncomfortably every time he thought about it for a week. Oh, I'm so glad, said Anne with shining eyes. Dear Stacy, it would be perfectly dreadful if you didn't come back. I don't believe I could have the heart to go on with my studies at all if another teacher came here. When Anne got home that night, she stacked all her textbooks away in the old trunk in the attic, locked it and threw the key into the blanket box. I'm not even going to look at a schoolbook in vacation, she told Marilla. I've studied as hard all term as I possibly could and I've pored over that geometry until I know every proposition in the first book off by heart, even when the letters are changed. I just feel tired of everything sensible and I'm going to let my imagination run riot for the summer. Oh, you needn't be alarmed, Marilla. I'll only let it run riot within reasonable limits but I want to have a real jolly good time this summer. For maybe it's the last summer I'll be a little girl. Mrs Lynn says that if I keep stretching out next year, as I've done this, I'll have to put on longer skirts. She says I'm all running to legs and eyes. And when I put on longer skirts, I shall feel that I have to live up to them and be very dignified. It won't even do to believe in fairies then, I'm afraid. So I'm going to believe in them with all my whole heart this summer. I think we're going to have a very gay vacation. Ruby Gillis is going to have a birthday party soon. And there's the Sunday school picnic and the missionary concert next month. And Mrs Barry that says some evenings, she'll take Diana and me over to White Sands Hotel and have dinner there. They have dinner there in the evening, you know. Jane Andrews was over last summer. And she says it was a dazzling sight to see the electric lights and the flowers and all the lady guests in such beautiful dresses. Jane says it was her first glimpse into high life and she'll never forget it to her dying day. Mrs Lind came up the next afternoon to find out why Marilla had not been at the aid meeting on Thursday. When Marilla was not at aid meetings, people knew there was something wrong at Green Gables. Matthew had a bad spell with his heart Thursday, Marilla explained, and I didn't feel like leaving him. Oh yes, he's all right again now, but he takes them spells oftener than he used to, and I'm anxious about him. The doctor says he must be careful to avoid excitement. That's easy enough, for Matthew doesn't go about looking for excitement by any means, and never did. But he's not to do any heavy work either, "'And you might as well tell Matthew not to breathe as not to work. "'Come and lay off your things, Rachel. You'll stay to tea?' "'Well, seeing as you're so pressing, perhaps I might as well stay,' said Mrs Rachel, "'who had not the slightest intention of doing anything else. "'Mrs Rachel and Marilla sat comfortably in the parlour "'while Anne got the tea and made hot biscuits that were light and white enough "'to defy even Mrs Rachel's criticism.' I must say, Anne has turned out a real smart girl, admitted Mrs Rachel, as Marilla accompanied her to the end of the lane at sunset. She must be a great help to you. She is, said Marilla, and she's real steady and reliable now. I used to be afraid she'd never get over her feather-brained ways, but she has, and I won't be afraid to trust her in anything now. "'I never would have thought she had turned out so well "'that first day I was here three years ago,' said Mrs Rachel. "'Lawful heart, shall I never forget that tantrum of hers. "'When I went home that night, I says to Thomas, says I, "'Mark my words, Thomas, Marilla Cuthbert will live to rue the step she's took. "'But I was mistaken, and I'm real glad of it. "'I ain't one of those kind of people, Marilla.' as can never be brought to own up that they've made a mistake. No, that was never my way, thank goodness. I did make a mistake in judging Anne. But it weren't no wonder, for an odd unexpected which of a child there never was in this world, that's what. There was no ciphering her out by the rules that worked with other children. It's nothing short of wonderful how she's improved these three years, but especially in looks. She's a real pretty girl, got to be. Though I can't say I'm overly partial to that pale, big-eyed style myself. I like more snap and colour, like Diana Barry has or Ruby Gillis. Ruby Gillis's looks are real showy. But somehow, I don't know how it is. But when Anne and them are together, though she ain't half as handsome, she makes them look kind of common and overdone. Something like them white June lilies she calls Narcissus alongside of the big red peonies that's what CHAPTER thirty one Where the Brook and River Meet Anne had her good summer and enjoyed it wholeheartedly. She and Diana fairly lived outdoors, revelling in all the delights that lovers lane in the dryads bubble and Willowmere and Victoria Island offered. Marilla offered no objections to Anne's gypsyings. The Spencervale doctor, who had come the night Minnie May had the croup, met Anne at the house of a patient one afternoon, early in vacation, looked her over sharply, screwed up his mouth, shook his head, and sent a message to Marilla Cuthbert by another person. It was... Keep that red-headed girl of yours in the open air all summer and don't let her read books until she gets more spring into her step. This message frightened Marilla wholesomely. She read Anne's death warrant by consumption in it, unless it was scrupulously obeyed. As a result, Anne had the golden summer of her life as far as freedom and frolic went. She walked, rode buried and dreamed to her heart's content. And when September came, she was bright-eyed and alert, with a step that would have satisfied the Spencervale doctor and a heart full of ambition and zest once more. I feel just like studying with might and main, she declared, as she brought her books down from the attic. Oh, you good old friends, I'm glad to see your honest faces once more. "'Yes, even you, Geometry. "'I've had a perfectly beautiful summer, Marilla, "'and now I'm rejoicing as a strong man to run a race,' "'as Mr Allen said last Sunday. "'Doesn't Mr Allen preach magnificent sermons? "'Mrs Lynn said he's improving every day "'and the first thing we know, some city church will gobble him up "'and then we'll be left and have to turn to "'and break in another green preacher.' But I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway, do you, Marilla? I think it would be better just to enjoy Mr Allen while we have him. If I were a man, I think I'd be a minister. They can have such an influence for good, if their theology is sound. And it must be thrilling to preach splendid sermons and stir your hearers' hearts. Why can't women be ministers, Marilla? I asked Mrs Lynde that and she was shocked and said it would be a scandalous thing. She said there might be female ministers in the States, and she believed there was. But thank goodness we hadn't got to that stage in Canada yet, and she hoped we never would. But I don't see why. I think women would make splendid ministers. When there is a social to be got up, or a church tea, or anything else to raise money, the women have to run to and do the work. I'm sure Mrs Lynde can pray every bit as well as Superintendent Bell, and I've no doubt she could preach too, with a little patience. Yes, I do believe she could, said Marilla dryly. She does plenty of unofficial preaching as it is. Nobody has much of a chance to go wrong in Avonlea with Rachel to oversee them. Marilla, said Anne in a burst of confidence, I want to tell you something and ask you what you think about it. It has worried me terribly, on Sunday afternoons that is, when I think specially about such matters. I do really want to be good and when I'm with you or Mrs Allen or Miss Stacy, I want it more than ever and I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of but mostly when I'm with Mrs Lynde, I feel desperately wicked and as if I want to go and do the very thing she tells me I oughtn't to do. I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. Now, what do you think is the reason I feel like that? Do you think it's because I'm really bad and unregenerate? Marilla looked dubious for a moment. Then she laughed. If you are, I guess I am too, Anne. For Rachel often has that very effect on me. I sometimes think she'd have more of an influence for good. As you say yourself, if she didn't keep nagging people to do right. There should have been a special commandment against nagging. But there, I shouldn't talk so. Rachel is a good Christian woman and she means well. There isn't a kinder soul in Avonlea and she never shrinks her share of work. I'm very glad you feel the same, said Anne decidedly. It's so encouraging. I shan't worry so much over that after this. I dare say there'll be other things to worry me. They keep coming up new all the time. Things to perplex you, you know? You settle one question and there's another right after. There are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. It keeps me busy all the time thinking them over and deciding what is right. It's a serious thing to grow up, isn't it, Marilla? But when I have such good friends as you and Matthew and Mrs Allen and Miss Stacy, I ought to grow up successfully. And I'm sure it will be my own fault if I don't. I feel it's a great responsibility because I have only the one chance. If I don't grow up right, I can't go back and begin over again. I've grown two inches this summer, Marilla. Mr Gillis measured me at Ruby's party. I'm so glad you made my new dresses longer. The green one is so pretty, and it's so sweet of you to put on the flounce. Of course, I know it wasn't really necessary, but flounces are so stylish this fall, and Josie Pye has flounces on all her dresses. I know I'll be able to study better because of mine. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. It's worth something to have that, admitted Marilla. Miss Stacy came back to Avonlea School and found all her pupils eager to work once more. Especially did the Queen's class gird up their loins for the fray, for at the end of the coming year, dimly shadowing their pathway already, loomed up that fateful thing known as the entrance, at the thought of which one and all felt their hearts sink into their very shoes. Suppose they did not pass.' The thought was doomed to haunt Anne through the waking hours of that winter, Sunday afternoons inclusive, to the almost entire exclusion of moral and theological problems. When Anne had bad dreams, she found herself staring miserably at pass lists of the entrance exams, where Gilbert Blythe's name was blazoned at the top, and in which hers did not appear at all. But it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter, Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing, as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peaked o'er hills and Alps on Alps arose. Much of all this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs Lynde and the school trustees who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. Apart from her studies, Anne expanded socially for Morella, mindful of the Spectravail doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. Between times, Anne grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than herself. Why, Anne, how you've grown, said Marilla. Almost unbelievingly, a sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a queer regret over Anne's inches. The child she had learned to love had vanished somehow. And here was this tall, serious-eyed girl of 15, with the thoughtful brows and the proudly poised little head in her place. Marilla loved the girl as much as she had loved the child. But she was conscious of a queer, sorrowful sense of loss. And that night, when Anne had gone to prayer meeting with Diana, Marilla sat alone in the wintry twilight and indulged in the weakness of a cry. Matthew, coming in with a lantern, caught her at it and gazed at her in such consternation that Marilla had to laugh through tears. "'I was thinking about Anne,' she explained. "'She's got to be such a big girl.' and she'll probably be away from us next winter. I miss her terrible. She'll be able to come home often, comforted Matthew, to whom Anne was as yet and always would be the little eager girl he had brought home from Bright River on that June evening four years before. The Branch Railroad will be built to Carmody by that time, It won't be the same thing as having her here all the time, sighed Marilla gloomily, determined to enjoy her luxury of grief uncomforted. But there, men can't understand these things. There were other changes in Anne, no less real than the physical change. For one thing, she became much quieter. Perhaps she thought all the more and dreamed as much as ever but she certainly talked less. Marilla noticed and commented on this also. You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne. Nor use half as many big words. What has come over you? Anne coloured and laughed a little as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out of the window, where big fat red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of the spring sunshine. I don't know. I don't want to talk as much, she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. It's nicer to think dear pretty thoughts and keep them in one's heart like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or wondered over. And somehow I don't want to use big words anymore. It's almost a pity, isn't it? Now that I'm really going big enough to see them if I did want to, It's fun to be almost grown up in some ways. But it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to learn and do and think that there isn't time for big words. Besides, Miss Stacy says the short ones are much stronger and better. She makes us write all our essays as simply as possible. It was hard at first. I was so used to crowding in all the fine big words I could think of. And I thought of any number of them but I've got used to it now, and I see it so much better. What has become of your story club? I haven't heard you speak of it for a long time. The story club isn't in existence any longer. We hadn't time for it. And anyhow, I think we had got tired of it. It was silly to be writing about love and murder and elopements and mysteries. Miss Stacy sometimes has us write a story for training in composition, but she won't let us write anything but what happens in Avonlea in our own lives and she criticises it very sharply and makes us criticise our own too. I never thought my compositions had so many faults until I began to look for them myself. I felt so ashamed and I wanted to give up altogether, but Miss Stacy said I could learn to write well if I only trained myself to be my own severest critic and so I am trying to. You've only got two more months before the entrance, said Marilla. Do you think you'll be able to get through? Anne shivered. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'll be all right, and then I get horribly afraid. We've studied hard and Miss Stacy has drilled us thoroughly, but we mayn't get through for all that. We've each got a stumbling block. Mine is geometry, of course, and Jane's is Latin, and Ruby and Charlie's is algebra, and Josie's is arithmetic. Moody Spurgeon says he feels it in his bones that he's going to fail in English history. Miss Stacy is going to give us examinations in June, just as hard as we'll have at the entrance, and markers just as strictly, so we'll have some idea. I wish it was all over, Marilla. It haunts me. Sometimes I wake up in the night and wonder what I'll do if I don't pass. Why go to school next year and try again, said Marilla unconcernedly. Oh, I don't believe I'd have the heart for it. It would be such a disgrace to fail, especially if Gil, if the others passed. And I get so nervous in an examination that I'm likely to make a mess of it. I wish I had nerves like Jane Andrews. Nothing rattles her. Anne sighed. And dragging her eyes from the witcheries of the spring world, the beckoning days of breeze and blue, and the green things upspringing in the garden, buried herself resolutely in her book. There would be other springs, but if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced that she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. Thank you, again, for continuing to join us for each episode of Storylight. And if you're new to us, we send you the warmest welcome. Whether you're a new listener or an old friend, we at Storylight would be very grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. More than that, though... We would love for more people to be able to enjoy these stories. So please, tell a friend about us. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. We'll see you next time.